2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. One more time. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Father, with this single, profound scripture before us, we bow and bend the knee before you. And we say praise to the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Father, we worship you and praise you this morning. And we are struck by the truths, the absolute irrevocable truths of your word. And I don't think a day goes by, Father, where I don't increase in my thankfulness for your word given to us. That we have an anchor in this world of competing opinions and fiery attitudes. Men and women, Lord, throwing out their own words of wisdom and trying to understand a very perplexing world. And we have your word. And I thank you. And I pray this morning that you will, Father, bring us to truth and understanding and clarity and revelation. Yes, Lord, revelation. We pray always. For we understand that revelation is you bringing your word into our hearts and giving us understanding and motivation to act on and live out the very words that we study. So we invite you and we ask you, Holy Spirit, to be our rabbi this morning and teach us your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. What a week. My daughter sent me a, uh, a text with a, a link to it from her pastor in Wisconsin. Good guy. He, he's an excellent, excellent Bible teacher. I've, I've heard him on occasion, and she sent me teachings every now. In fact, most of my teaching lately has just been rip-offs of him. Uh, <laughs> not true. But um, she sent me a blog post that he did on Wednesday following Tuesday's election. And so I read it. And what he had to say was very gracious and very compassionate, and I I liked what he shared. And, boy, there's a lot of opinion being written, and a lot of thoughts out there. It made me stop and think, how how much opinion do I give? I know I can give some. I understand this. But how much is, is the teaching of the Word littered with opinion, and how much more important is it just to hear the sound words of God? Because God's Word is not one man's opinion. The Bible is not a collection of 40 different authors' opinions on how the world is supposed to function. These are the words of God. And these are the wisdom of God. And so, honestly, when I woke Wednesday morning to a a changed direction in our country, Donald Trump having won the presidency by the Electoral College, I recognize, I understand the popular vote did not completely support Donald Trump, but actually went... Hillary Clinton. But the Electoral College 
legally and as our country's uh, process functions and works did, I, I believe, what it was supposed to do. Now, you may disagree with that opinion. That's fine. But when I woke, what I really began to think about, and, and over the last three or four days especially, watching the reaction of some, violent protests, not, not quiet protests of the disappointed, but car lots being smashed up, uh, the anarchy symbol, the A with the circle with the A in it, spray painted in different places, actually even death occurring. And I look at that and I think, that's really sad to me. It's really sad to me, not because of which way the election went, and we can talk about that, but that's not my purpose this morning. It's sad to me because people in this world fail to realize a very basic and fundamental truth, and it comes from the Word of God, Daniel chapter 2, verse 21, which reads, It is He who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. And here's the thing. Wise people get this. Knowledgeable people understand. We live in a world in which if God is not the issue, people will find one. If it's not about Jesus, it's going to be about something. And if I have no Jesus, no God, no heaven, no future to live for, I'm going to find a reason for being here. Be it a violent reason. Be it a political reason. God's the one in charge here. I believe God did on Tuesday night what God had intended to do all along. I do. Again, you can disagree with me. I personally believe we have, as as Christians and as a country, been given a reprieve. What do you mean a reprieve, Rick? I mean four more years at least. I don't know, Jesus could come tonight. But more time, more time to share the gospel. More opportunity to get the word out. So I think as Christians, we ought to respond to that. But if God is not the issue, again, people will find one. I was driving back up Wednesday morning, actually, from uh, dropping Valentine off at school, Oak Harbor High School, driving up the road, and I got behind this car that was kind of puttering along, not really my speed, but it was fine, a little white car, and since we were going slow enough and I was close enough, I I figured I'd read the bumper stickers. (laughs) Whoever came up with that idea of bumper stickers? I mean, that's just the stupidest thing. Wait, get closer, I can't read it. (laughs) Anyway, the bumper sticker said, listen to this, just because someone is wandering doesn't mean they are lost. Now that's a statement. Just because someone is wandering doesn't mean they are lost. I, I pondered that. First I read it and I went, I thought it did, but you know, it's just me. And, and then I began to think about well, what was being implied, what's really being said here. Just because someone's wandering doesn't mean they're lost. And so I followed that little white car all the way up the highway, pondering and thinking through that bumper sticker plastered there. And I realized as I got closer to the church building here, I realized that I would add two words. I would say, just because someone is wandering doesn't mean they know they're lost. 
I would agree with that. Oftentimes people are wondering and have no idea that they are lost. That they are the wandering lost. But then some little Christian come somewhere comes up and, and uses the word lost about them in their non-believing state and they go, excuse me? Lost? How dare you? Just because I'm searching, just because I'm wandering, doesn't mean I'm lost. And so labels like that, and that label lost for non-believing people, has been used for centuries among Christians. And when that label is used, it can just as easily get thrown back in the faces of well-intentioned followers of Jesus, along with return labels. (laughs) like bigoted, intolerant, and hypocrite. By the way, that's rarely the case. Can I just tell you? I have not found a whole lot of intolerant, bigoted Christians. I know there are some out there. But they don't understand their faith. For the most part, what I see among Christians are people who actually do love. People who actually do care about this world. Who actually do want to see people saved. But how would you use that? Why can you use that? Where does that word lost come from? Look, we don't use the word lost as a slam to the wanderer. Rather, when I say, when I speak of, when I talk about the lost, I am doing so to stimulate my own sometimes sluggish compassion to go and seek and save. To recognize that there are, in fact, people who are wandering, lost in this world. And when I say that word, it stirs something in my heart. I'm not trying to put anybody down. But I'm, I'm recognizing that, that there are people that don't know even where they are. And so they'll pick an issue, or they'll choose a cause, and they'll stand up for it. Brothers and sisters in Christ, what are you standing up for? In this world, a political party? A direction for this country? Or are you standing up for Jesus Christ and all He represents in this world? I still think back though, and as I was driving, then the next thing that came to my mind, it was a slow car, <laughs> was where did we get the word lost from in the first place? Who was the first person to coin that? You might be surprised. It was David. And he was talking about himself. He applied it to himself. He said, Psalm 119, 176, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not commit your commandments. David saw his own problem for what it was. I remember the truth. I know what the Bible says, Lord, but but I'm wandering lost. You ever feel that way? Is it possible for a Christian to be lost? I would say no. Is it possible for a Christian to feel lost? Yes. Absolutely. Confused? You know, not sure, perplexed? Even Paul said we're perplexed, but not completely perplexed, right? Wandering lost. And then God came along and applied the same phrase, the same word that David used on himself. God applied to his people Israel. In Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 6, he said... My people have become lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray. They have made them turn aside on the mountains. They have gone along from mountain to hill and have forgotten their resting place. They're lost. So God says that. David and God. And while the prophet Jeremiah spoke those words, even as Jerusalem burned... 
the prophet Ezekiel, in the same time frame, was in Babylon. And he was prophesying in Babylon, Jeremiah prophesying in Jerusalem. And around that same time, God spoke similar words of his lost sheep as a warning to the bad shepherds of Israel. Listen to this, I'm just going to read it to you. It's Ezekiel chapter 34. The prophet writes, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool? You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock? Those who are sickly you have not strengthened. The diseased you have not healed. The broken you have not bound up. The scattered you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the lost. And there it is. But with force and with severity you have dominated them. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd. They became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. My flock wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. My flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth. And there was no one to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my flock has become a prey... My flock has even become food for all the beasts of the field for lack of a shepherd. And my shepherds did not search for my flock, but rather the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. Therefore, you shepherds hear the word of the Lord. By now, I hope that he has their attention. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds. And I will demand my sheep from them and make them cease from feeding sheep. So the shepherds will not feed themselves anymore. But listen, I will deliver my flock. I will deliver my flock from their mouth so they will not be food for them. So in that case, Israel is the wandering lost. Israel was the poorly shepherded sheep now scattered among the mountains and the hills. Drawn away into paganism, leaving the one true God and their resting place. Israel, the wandering lost. But what did God say? I'm going to go get them. I'm going to go find them. I'm going to bring them back. And approximately 575 years later, the good shepherd came to the world. Jesus arrived. God did exactly what He said He was going to do. Matthew chapter 10, verse 5, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we're told that the twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them. They were the original twelfth man, men. I don't know if they had a little blue jerseys. Or maybe the neon green, the new you know, chartreuse color that's coming out. The twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them. He said, do not go in the way of the Gentiles. Do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus knew the words of David, the words of God through Jeremiah and through Ezekiel. Jesus understood why he came. And it was first and foremost to find the lost sheep of Israel. Matthew 15, 24, Jesus said to a a Gentile woman, He said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then He healed her daughter. 
And Romans 1.16, Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, the good news, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That the Lord would recognize and Jesus would say in John 10, I have other sheep, not of this fold, and I must go to them as well. The good shepherd. This concept of lostness, of the lost, of the wanderer, was owned by David and first applied to Israel. But then something happened when the good shepherd came. John chapter 1 verse 10 says he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. And God was not shocked at the flock. He was not surprised. He knew exactly what would happen when the good shepherd came. He knew that the shepherd would be rejected. In fact, through Zechariah, he said, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. It was all part of the plan from the beginning that after Israel's rejection, God's offer of salvation was not withdrawn. It was widened. You've heard the sports phrase, go big or go home. God went big. God went big. When Israel rejected, He went worldwide. And John 1.12 says, As many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. It's as simple as that. It's as glorious as that. The invitation goes out to all sheep in all fields of all the world. And Jesus said this in Luke 19, verse 10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Lost. And then in Luke 15, stay with this thought for a moment, Jesus told three parables comparing people to lost things. A lost sheep, a lost coin, ultimately a lost son. You know the story, everybody's heard the story of the prodigal son. The son who went away. The poster child for the wandering lost. Because until we're found, until we open our eyes and begin to believe, that is what we are. It's not a pejorative term. It's just a reality. If eyes are closed and Jesus is rejected, you are wandering lost. But when the lost son, the lost daughter, gets it, In the parable, in the moment of sorrowful clarity, when the son is in the pig pen, he is pierced to the heart, and Jesus taught the following, Luke 15, 20, he got up and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, he says. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father, not even listening to him, Father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe, put it on him, bring a ring and put it on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate barbecue time. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life and he was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. See, that's what God does when the lost are found. In the parable of the prodigal son, what's wonderful is Jesus said as soon as the father saw the son, he ran to him. It's the one instance in scripture where God ran. He ran to him, but 
Listen to this. What Jesus doesn't say is that the father chased down the prodigal. When did the father run to the son? After the son had turned his feet to home. Once the son had made the choice, the father did not go and drag him out of a bar or off the strip. The father didn't pull him from the party or manhandle him out of the muck and the mire. The father waited for the son to turn his feet to home. And the son was found as soon as he turned around. As soon as he headed for home. He didn't feel like he was doing anything to make things right. He thought he was going to have to grovel and maybe serve in the kitchens for long years. Or maybe stay there the rest of his life. But at least he would be home. He thought all these things that he would have to do. You know what he had to do? He had to turn his feet to home. That was it. That's all he had to do. That was the whole thing. And when someone realizes they are wandering lost, when they get pierced to the heart, the question always is, what do I do? What do I do? Repent. Repent. Okay, well, is that, is that like a religious term and there are lots of things I have to do? No. Listen, repent is what the prodigal did. He turned his feet to home. That's it. That is repentance. They were gathered there in Jerusalem to celebrate Shavuot. That is, in Hebrew, the feast of the ingathering. And at that great celebration, we in the church call it Pentecost, because penta means 50, and it was 50 days after the feast of first fruits, which comes immediately following the Passover. And it was exactly 50 days, you Bible students know, after Jesus was crucified, the resurrection of Jesus. Ten days after the last time he had been seen by his followers, before he ascended from the Mount of Olives, ten days later, on Shavuot, the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles. Perhaps came upon the entire 120 believers. It's it's not absolutely clear there. But the Holy Spirit came upon those disciples, those believers, those followers in Jerusalem. And Peter stood up and he began to preach the first gospel sermon of this suddenly inaugurated church. Listen to this, Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? It's the exact same thing the prodigal said in the pig pen. What shall I do? I know. I'll go home and I'll grovel and beg. And and he starts to think religiously like we all do. I'll do all these things. So the Jews in Jerusalem, realizing what is being preached about Jesus the Christ, they start to say, well, what do we do? How do we make things right? And Peter said to them, repent. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, 2,000 years far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to Himself. In the second sermon of the newly inaugurated church, Acts chapter 3, verse 18, Peter says, The things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that His Christ, His Messiah, would suffer, He has thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent 
and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that He may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you. Repent is God's word to the wandering lost. Turn around. Just turn around. And I will run to you. Repent. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. We're back. Paul wrote Corinth in hopes of rousing repentance. Not this letter. This letter, as you know, is a letter of comfort. But the prior letter, the lost letter, the severe letter, the harsh letter of Paul, to which he refers in this letter, was written to rouse repentance. There was a problem. We've been talking about that. Understand, the people in Corinth to whom Paul is writing were already Christians, therefore already saved, but they were wandering. They were losing themselves. They had wandered or were wandering or some were wandering away from the truth. They were in conflict with Christ Jesus' ambassador, Paul. Not that they couldn't have different opinions, but this was apparently over matters of grave spiritual consequence. What was the problem? What was the issue? We can only guess what it was about. We can make some educated guesses, but as I mentioned on Wednesday night, it doesn't matter. The issue was not the issue. The heart was the issue. And what Corinth needed was a change of heart to turn their feet toward home. And Paul was working to that end. He sent that gut-wrenching, heart-piercing letter through his friend, his compadre Titus. He sends Titus to Corinth with the letter. And again, it was a letter that was so severe, Paul himself (laughs) regretted sending it at first. I know you've never done that. Said something or sent a letter or left a message on a phone, sent a text and went, Oh man, is there any way to get that back? Can I withdraw? And Paul felt that way until he saw the response. Now we talked about this All on Wednesday night. But listen as regret fades in light of repentance. Verse 6 of 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Back it up a bit. Paul writes, But God who comforts the depressed comforted us by the coming of Titus. You recall Paul went went up in his missionary journeys waiting for it, looking for Titus. Titus didn't come. He went further up into Macedonia. He couldn't do ministry. He was so preoccupied by what was going on in Corinth. Did they get the letter? What did they think? Have they read it? He wouldn't know until Titus came back. He couldn't get a text from Titus. All is good, you know, with a little happy face. So he had to wait and wait and wait. Finally, Titus came. And when Titus came, it was like a wave of comfort over the Apostle Paul. He said in verse 7, and not only by His coming, but also by the comfort with which He was comforted in you. As He reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for Me, so that I rejoiced even more. For though I caused you sorrow by My letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a little while. I now rejoice. Not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. 
Paul was comforted. He even celebrated that they got it. They got it. Oh, not the letter. They got the heart behind the letter. And that is what is behind this inspired verse. That's the context of what is being said here. A verse that has been quoted multiple times by myself and and others. But it comes from that place of a people made sorrowful to the point of repentance. And then he writes, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. That single verse is amazing, important theology. I mean, that's one of those standalone verses, and there are plenty throughout the Scriptures, that you almost don't need the context because it says so much in the very verse itself. But you need to understand what sometimes is missed when this single verse is read and studied, is that the issue is not repentance. That what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, is not a theology of repentance. How so? Well, think this through. Repentance, that's the word metanoia. Metanoia. Uh, repent is metanoeo. It's kind of how the Greek language works, but they are both uh, that word, the root word, metanoeo. And it's a compound word for repentance. Meta, which means with And noeo, which is conscious understanding. That's important. Because an aspect of repentance is with conscious understanding. The prodigal consciously understood that he was turning his feet to home. The people who heard the preaching of Peter on the day of Pentecost consciously understood the decisions they made when 3,000 gave themselves to the Lord that day. It's a conscious decision. It is not forced. It is not thrust upon you. It's not something that happens and the next thing you know you're just a Christian because you couldn't help yourself. And it's funny because I think sometimes non-believers think that. I don't want to go to church. Why not? Because then I might become a Christian. Not if you don't want to. It is a conscious understanding. But that same word, metanoeo, came to mean literally a change not of mind. Not of mind. It's not a change of mind. It's a change of heart. Changing your mind happens all the time. But changing your heart, that's a big deal. You do that consciously. And again, this is not a theology of repentance. It is a theology of sorrow. That's what's going on here. That's what Paul's dealing with and talking about. A theology of sorrow. And the Bible makes clear here, through the Apostle, two kinds. Two kinds of sorrow over a wrong that has been done. There is godly sorrow and there is worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. And oftentimes we have such an amazing go-to picture for what godly sorrow looks like and what worldly sorrow looks like. And I'm going to go there as well for a clear contrast. Look at Peter and Judas. Peter, the apostle... And Judas, the apostle, both called by Jesus, both of the original twelve, both lived with, walked with Jesus for three and a half years, both heard Him teach, both watched Him preach, both looked at the miracles, both saw Him walk on the water, both saw Him lift up the lame, both watched as He brought the dead to life. I mean, all of these phenomenal situations, both men saw, both men were present, And again, both were chosen by Jesus and both were loved by Jesus. Judas and Peter. 
both men were warned by him of their worldly wisdom, of their type of thinking. They were both warned by him against apostasy. Peter was warned, you know, of falling away. Jesus actually said to Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. I mean, I've been angry with people before. I have yet to call anybody Satan, even on staff. (laughs) Peter was warned. Peter was told before the rooster crows three times, You're going to deny me, Peter. Warning. Jesus told him ahead of time. Same with Judas. He was warned ahead. And yet both men, Peter and Judas, denied Jesus in apostasy. Apostasy, falling away. Both fell from Jesus. Both fell from grace, you might say. And in essence, both men betrayed their friend and their Lord. Both Peter and Judas. Here's the difference. Godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Judas had regret. Peter had repentance. Regret and repentance are not the same thing. Sometimes we mix them up. Even Christians will do that. They think that the issue of repentance is is about making myself feel bad and low and guilty and shameful. Repent. You know? Repentance is not regret. And regret is not repentance. The difference is the type of sorrow behind both of these two men. Matthew 26, verse 75, tells us Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said, Before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. You know the scene, Bible students in the Gospel of Luke, that they were close enough in the courtyard that after the, the third denial of Peter, the rooster crowed, Peter looked up, and Jesus was eye to eye with him. Can you even imagine being Peter in that moment? That you look across the courtyard at an already beaten up Jesus and He's looking right at you. And by the way, I doubt it was this kind of look. (laughs) Eyes filled, brimming with tears and compassion. I told you this is what was going to happen. And Peter, as the Scriptures tell us, went out and he wept bitterly. Godly sorrow. Godly sorrow. Judas, Matthew 27, verse 3, who had betrayed him, when he saw that he had been condemned, Jesus had been condemned, he felt remorse. He felt bad. He returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. Judas knew he did the wrong thing, made the wrong choice, and felt remorse over it. Both men felt deep sorrow over the wrong they had done. But the difference again is a worldly sorrow that changes the mind. Judas recognized his sin and felt remorse for his wrong. He changed his mind. Here, take the money back. I I, I don't want to be guilty anymore. That's worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow changes the heart. Yeah, Peter went out and he wept bitterly. For three days he would be in in the depths of depression. But you know where Peter was at the end of three days? He was still with the followers of Jesus. He was still there. Waiting. Though for what? He didn't know. Praying. 
sorrowful, godly sorrow. He recognized his sin, just as Judas did, but the difference is Peter repented of his wrong. How do you know? How do you know the difference? Simple. It's what you do. One sorrow produced salvation. Peter would go on to follow Jesus all the way to his own martyrdom. And the other one was death. Judas wept tears of regret and he hanged himself. Peter wept tears of repentance and he humbled himself. Judas' life was lost both immediately and eternally. Peter's life was saved immediately and eternally. You see, the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Jesus prayed prophetically on the night before He was crucified. Before His his death, John 17, 12, He said, I thank You, Lord, that not one of them was lost, speaking of His twelve men, not one of them was lost but the son of perdition, which means waste, so that the Scripture would be fulfilled. You see, Strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Jesus was struck and all of the sheep scattered. They all fled. Every single one of the apostles betrayed him as it were. They all ran away. They all disappeared. They all felt the godly sorrow after the fact. One of them, the son of perdition, did not feel godly sorrow. He felt worldly sorrow. And though he changed his mind, he did not change his heart. That's the sorrow of the world. Think through this with me just a a bit longer. The sorrow of the world. Why does it lead to death? Because changing the mind is not the same as changing the heart. What does that even mean? Well, worldly sorrow causes regret. Regret doesn't last. Regret is is a short-term thing. Regret is casual. It's circumstantial. Situational. It's even seasonal. You could call it turn and return. Regret causes someone to turn from what they did, but they'll be right back doing it again. Judas would betray again if given the opportunity 5, 10, 15 years down the road. Regret just feels bad. But after a while, we just kind of, the feelings just kind of go away, or, or we push them down, or we ignore them, and then we just go on about doing the same thing we were doing before. That's not repentance. When people say, Rick, I I repented of that sin, but I keep struggling with it. Then I say, well, then you didn't repent. You regret it. You feel bad about it. You feel guilt over it, but you have not repented of it. How do you know? Because you're still doing it. Because your feet have not yet turned to home. Oh, you, you spun around in guilt, but that's not the same thing. Worldly sorrow, Peter describes it, I think, beautifully this way. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 22. It has happened to them according to the true proverb. Proverbs 26.11 A dog returns to its own vomit. And, Peter adds to this, after washing, a sow returns to wallowing in the mire. That's regret. Regret says, I'm sorry, I feel bad. Peter quotes this dog vomit passage from Proverbs 26 
And then he adds in his own pig in the poop to point out, to point out a very obvious thing, and that is this. This is going to be the most profound thing I'll say all morning, so you might want to write this down. A dog is always a dog. Write it down. And a pig is always a pig. What are you, are you calling us dogs and pigs? No, I'm not. But let me explain. I can shoo Reggie away from his own chuck. I can push him back. You know, he spits up on the floor and I can pull him back. But unless I hold him back until we clean it up, and by we I mean Cheryl. He, he's gonna go right back to it. That's what dogs do. It's absolutely disgusting. But they're dogs. Why do you let them lick your face? I don't understand that. When when Reggie does this, and from time to time he will do this, you know, if we don't hold him back while it gets cleaned up, he's gonna go right back to it. It's in his nature. And the same thing with a pig. You can go to Bath and Body Works. You can buy the best scents of the season. And you can wash a pig from its head to its twirly tail. And you know what's going to happen. It's all pink and shiny and clean. But it's going to head for the nearest warm and steamy manure pile the first chance it gets. Because it's a pig. We have a word for this kind of behavior. And it's character. It's nature. A pig acts like a pig, a dog acts like a dog, and a human does what a human does. Which means this, no matter how much you, no matter how much I change our minds in regret, it's worldly sorrow, and it only ultimately ends in death. Because the real change has not come. Eventually, I'm going to vomit out my real self. Eventually, I'm going to go right back to wallowing in what I did before. Why is that? Because of the sin nature. I need more than a change of mind. I need a change of heart. And that only happens when you're born again. you got to be born again. Born to a, a new life. Jesus said, John 3, verse 3, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He says, that which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. And God is Spirit. You see, godliness and righteousness, it requires a changed nature. A changed nature that comes from a different kind of sorrow. Not the typical worldly sorrow, but instead, godly sorrow. Sorrow that is according to the will of God. Why is it according to the will of God? Listen, it's godly sorrow because it recognizes this very fundamental truth. Godly sorrow recognizes that my sin is not against anybody else, it's against Him. Whatever my sin is. If I wrong another person, ultimately I'm actually wronging God. I get a bit of this as a father because if one of my children wrongs another, I feel wronged. Because these are all my children. Don't wrong her. Don't wrong him. Don't fight. Don't quarrel. Don't hurt each other. Because you're all my children. And when I look down and I see those wrongs happening, they come against me. I feel that. And every sin that is committed on the planet ultimately is a sin against him. And so godly sorrow recognizes, understands that. Look at verse 11 of 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul says, For behold... 
what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. Paul's just beside himself with excitement. What vindication of yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What longing. What zeal. What avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. Godly sorrow. And Paul's so excited because they got it. They felt godly sorrow, which wasn't remorse and regret and guilt and shame. No, it was godly sorrow that that made them indignant over what was going on. That made them zealous to change it. That turned their feet toward home. That's godly sorrow. It's David. David, after he lusted for Bathsheba, he took her to himself in an adulterous affair. He got her pregnant. Then he lied about it. Tried to cover it up. He got her husband, Uriah, drunk so that he would think that he had slept with his wife and she was pregnant from him so they could just kind of hush-hush the whole thing. And when that didn't work, David then conspired to have Uriah murdered in battle on the front lines. And David wrote in that amazing psalm, Psalm 51, verse 2, he said, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. And if he had stopped right there, I would say that's worldly sorrow. A lot of people feel guilt and shame over things. But David went on to explain, he says in Psalm 51, 4, against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you, God, you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. See, wash a pig, it's going to get dirty again. But get washed by God and He will cleanse you thoroughly. Which is what David was praying for. I want a thorough cleansing. Romans 2 verse 4 says the kindness of God leads you to repentance. Not regret, but repentance. Now, theologically, many people take this idea of repentance and they religiousize it. You know, we, we try to figure out what it looks like and, and make it into this thing as part of the list that we have to accomplish and check the boxes to get ourselves saved. And again, it completely misses the point that repentance doesn't save you. Faith does, in God's grace. Listen, Ephesians 2.8, By grace, that is God's mercy, His unmerited favor, by grace you have been saved. Through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Repentance is not something we do to be able to come back to God. Repentance is coming back to God. Repentance is the action of coming back. It's, it's the prodigal's feet turned toward home. Repentance is the condition of the heart that has just simply turned from sin toward God. That's repentance. It's a lot less heavy than sometimes it is preached. And Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He said, people seem to jump into faith very quickly nowadays. I do not disprove of that happy leap. But still, I hope my old friend repentance is not dead. 
I am desperately in love with repentance. It seems to be the twin sister of faith. Why? Because repentance is faith in action. Repentance is simply turning your feet toward that which you now believe. The heart changes so the feet go. If you try and make the feet go but the heart hasn't changed, the feet are just going to come right back around. Maybe I should go home. Maybe I shouldn't. Nah, I just won't think about it. Regret, but not repentance. Now listen, we're almost there. This is the work of godly sorrow. Godly sorrow. But remember the big difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow because this is a theology of sorrow. The big difference is this. Godly sorrow negates regret. Godly sorrow negates regret. Paul actually here uses the same word in reverse uh, for his own feelings of momentary regret. Remember back up in verse 8? He says, I caused you sorrow by my letter. I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. He takes that word regret and now he adds one letter to it in essence. The word regret, metamelomai, he changes to ametameletos. As the awe, which, which negates it. Godly sorrow negates regret. Ah, metamelatos means without regret. Godly sorrow produces without regret. Repentance without regret. And the word can be applied. Now get this. It can be applied either to salvation or to repentance. What do you mean? Okay, stay. are you with me? Okay, good. Stay with me. It can either be Salvation without regret. Godly sorrow produces salvation without regret. Or it can be, godly sorrow produces repentance without regret. The way that that it's worded there in verse 10, it can go either way, and, and scholars actually are a little conflicted as to what he's actually saying. Is it the sorrow that's according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, or produces a repentance unto salvation without regret? Which way is it? Think about it. Salvation without regret. In other words, you will never, ever regret having been saved. You will never regret salvation. That when we are 10 billion years or 10 trillion years or even the the amount of the national debt years home in heaven with Jesus, on into eternity, there will never, ever, ever be anyone in heaven with Jesus who goes... Boy, I missed that vomit. I missed the manure pile. Wish I could just go back to that old farm and roll in it. Nobody will regret having made the decision to follow Jesus ever. And part of that is you're not going to regret anything that you go through between now and eternity, between now and His coming. In the name of Jesus, you're not going to look back and go, yeah, but that one day was... I I, I just wish I hadn't had to go through that. No, you won't. Every moment of every day of your entire life, if you look back, you will say, (laughs) I can't even say it was worth it because it's so far beyond worth it. The hurt, the pain, the difficulty, the challenges, so far beyond worth it. It it pales, well, Paul put it this way, it pales in comparison, I was going to say. 
2 Corinthians 4.17 For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. That is salvation without regret. You won't regret it. Absolutely. In fact, once you're saved, you might wonder, why do people look back at all? Repentance without regret. Salvation without regret, or or it may be, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret. If I know I'm not going to regret my salvation, and I'm talking to Christians now, why would I live in regret now? If I know salvation is going to be worth it one day, why do I have regrets right now? Why do I look back right now? See, it's really kind of the opposite of repentance. If repentance is turning the feet toward home, regret is looking over your shoulder. Like Lot's wife. And it will leave you a pillar in the community. A pillar of salt in the community. Lot's wife regretted leaving Sodom. Her friends were there. Her lifestyle was there. Her community, her, her, her society, her culture was Sodom. As sin-sick as Sodom was. And so as they trailed out of town, being almost dragged out of town by the rescuing angel, out toward the mountains as Sodom was burning, she's looking over her shoulder. As a kid, I read that story and thought, that's not fair. What if you hear a noise behind you and you turn around? (laughs) That's not fair. See, what I didn't read into the story or understand was it was her heart that turned around. It was her longing. It was her desire. That's what she was looking back for. It wasn't just the physical action of looking back. The physical action was doing what the heart told her to do. In the same way that feet turning toward home is simply a physical action doing what your heart says to do. And so she turned and regretted. Listen, you might regret your past. And you might feel deep remorse for sinful choices and behaviors and failures. Everybody feels that. But godly sorrow leads to a repentance that negates regret. And it's remarkable to me that I still talk to believers about this from time to time. Why are you regretting 20 years ago? Why are you still looking back? Look forward. Because you're not going to regret your salvation. Live now in a repentance without regret. If you feel any sorrow, feel the godly sorrow that negates that regret. Paul uses the same exact word when he says a repentance without regret... He uses the same word in Romans 11.29. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Irrevocable. Are without regret. Without repentance. You don't turn from it. Godly sorrow brings an irrevocable repentance. I like that. That is, the feet are turned toward home and I don't look back. I just keep going. Because I will never regret that salvation and I am in a repentance that does not allow me to regret having repented. That's godly sorrow. And it all comes of recognizing one thing and it's really where we started this morning and that is it's all about God. It is not about us. And what happens in this world 
He knows what He's doing. And I'm going to trust Him for that. And I'm going to stand for Him in these next few years, Lord willing. And I'm going to be His man. Because I have turned to God, there is no turning back. No more wandering lost. No more wondering, am I saved? No regret. Again, Judas regretted his betrayal and he felt the weight of worldly sorrow. And we see where it ended. Peter, oh how he wept bitterly over his denial, but it was godly sorrow producing repentance. You know, there's another who wept. Another who felt sorrow like nobody has ever felt sorrow in this world. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 3. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hid their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. That's godly sorrow. A man of sorrows, Jesus Christ. He always goes first. Have you noticed that? That even with godly sorrow, He bore it first. And if you are wondering, lost. If you are regretting what's behind. If you have uncertainty ahead. Then I invite you to come to Jesus and you will not regret it.